Well, good afternoon, all. Good to be here on a beautiful Sabbath day. I uh, was on a trip this week and covered an awful lot of miles to Oregon and Montana and back and saw an awful lot of beautiful country, rivers and lakes and mountains and uh, frost on the sagebrush is beautiful and just an awful lot of God's creation. So I got home and was pondering some of that and was having trouble getting my mind I guess focused on reality because the beauty of God's creation is so outstanding and yet we have fouled and polluted this planet in spite of its still apparent beauty uh, almost beyond understanding. So I thought, well, I can't get my mind much in gear after that long a trip, that hard a week in some ways, and seeing a lot of beauty. So I got on the news this morning a little earlier and uh, came to grips with with a lot of reality of what's really going on in the world. Uh, if you're watching, it does appear that war between the United States and NATO and Russia could very easily erupt at any time over Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. and NATO want Ukraine to remain uh, independent from Russia. There is a geopolitical difficulty there, and Russia does not want us to be in the Ukraine. If we were to have a base there, we could have missiles set up that could reach Moscow and other parts important targets in Russia in five to seven minutes, which would not be quite long enough for them to defend themselves. So they have a line in the sand there. They will not let us come in and take over the Ukraine. But we seem bound and determined to go in that direction, and with very, very weak leadership on top of it, uh, and Putin isn't backing down. So there's a lot of saber-rattling going on uh, around Britain with Russian warships, and we're moving uh, warships into uh, the Mediterranean, Black Sea, and that kind of area. And we're supplying the Ukraine with tons and tons and tons of war material and ammunition, guns and everything that go with it, big ones and little ones. So... Uh, preparation is being made for war. I don't know if it starts there or when it starts there, how quickly it will escalate. It could go on there for some time on a more conventional basis before uh, Russia itself is attacked or the United States is attacked. But we know that's coming. It's just a matter of time and what all has to happen between now and then. And I'm not sure uh, exactly what Jeremiah means when he talks about civil war within our country. And at the same time, he's talking about the Assyrian attacking. So whether the civil war begins shortly before or perhaps even within the time we're attacked, 
is a little unclear, but it appears to me, on a let's say on a logical standpoint, that we would begin fighting among ourselves first. Because once they attack from the outside, you're not going to squabble with each other as much as you'll be facing a bigger force. So it seems logical to me we'll probably get into civil war ahead of that. And a lot points to that now. Uh, the Canadian truckers' strike for bringing goods back and forth between the U.S. and Canada has now been expanded and both vaccinated and unvaccinated truckers say they're going on strike and are not going to carry stuff across the borders. So how fast that will escalate and where it will go, we don't, do not know. We just have to watch these things and see what sets off the next round of trouble. It could be another variant of a disease that shows up. It could be a big trucker strike across the country that stops uh, delivery of foods. Uh, there are a lot of things that could set off bigger trouble. So we'll just sort of sit back and watch those things develop as they will. But something that really caught my attention this morning, and I've seen a, a list kind of like this oh, months back, I guess, but uh, on the Steve Quayle site, you might go there. I think I might even print out a copy of this for my own use. But he gives a list of, well, somebody does, that wrote the article, uh, a list of companies that are using aborted baby parts, murdered babies, as a flavor enhancer in their products. So there's a company in San Diego that takes aborted babies and makes this flavoring. And they're putting it in virtually anything. And almost, it appears, everything that's processed. Just a few companies that come back to mind here that I read down through a list. But uh, Quaker Oats, uh, they have a lot of different products. And uh, mentioned the oats themselves as being flavor enhanced with baby parts. Uh, Starbucks uses it in flavoring their drinks. Pepsi, Nestle, Kraft, Frito-Lay, uh, Oreos, whole list of candies and crackers and various things, uh, meats even, uh, that are using this baby parts enhancer. Uh, pet foods, even the food I've been feeding my cat, has flavor enhancement uh, of aborted babies. I'm not going to buy that anymore. I don't know. may have to put out a lot of mousetraps for her. But, you know, it's getting to the point where you can't trust anything. And you can go down through this list, and I, I just gave you just a few that came back to mind from reading it. And there's an awful lot more household names there that you're very familiar with and products that you've used and may still be using that have murdered babies in them. And how can we support in any way that kind of thing? Somebody even commented, I'm glad I'm not in the stock market, because if you're in there... 
the money that you have in the stock market is supporting these big companies that are murdering babies. So how do you want to give them any support at all when they're doing that kind of thing? So I want to go through there as much as possible, not by processed foods, which I don't do a lot of anyway, but uh, to be very careful of the ones that they list as using murdered people, babies, for flavor enhancement. That's cannibalism, just pure and simple is what it is. So that brought me back a little bit to the reality of what's going on in our world and why God's kingdom needs to be here and solve the multitude of problems we have on a beautiful earth that he has created and made beautiful for us, and yet we're wrecking and ruining every part of it, including our own health, by the junk we eat. Well, let's get back then to the book of Zechariah. We finished up chapter 1, and as a brief review, uh, he warns us not to be like our fathers in the past, and even our fathers in the church, I think, because this is a message directly to the end-time church. So not even those in the former temple who are leaders who did not listen to God properly either. And they have now died, and nearly all of them are gone, at least the ones at the top. And then he shows a time when war is about to break out and already has in the church, and a third have died of spiritual famine and pestilence, a third of spiritual warfare uh, with Satan and the world, and then a third taken back into the captivity of the world, and only a 10% remnant that is faithful remains. Isaiah 7 mentions the trouble coming and says in the last verse that 10% will return and be used by God uh, to further his purposes. And that is uh, a scripture that's repeated several times in the prophecies, that 10%. I'll, I'll review another point there where he says, How long it will it be that you will have mercy after these 70 years? And I think it implies very heavily there that once the 70 years has formally expired, there is a period of time there that is... Open. It isn't a long period of time, as I cited last week from Ezekiel, and of how it happened two and three years after the 70 years there in Daniel. But here he implies the same thing, that the 70 years is formally ended, and then the question is asked, how long before these things happen, and you show mercy on Jerusalem and Judah, which is the church? And we're still in that wait process. I think the 70 is over. The 430 is over. The 65 is over. But we're in that period thereafter that God leaves it up to him to decide exactly how long. So we sit and wonder about that. But it shouldn't distress us particularly because we understand that he said there would be a short period of time before it would all come together 
and happen in the way that he says. So he, he answered with good and comfortable words and says, Don't get too excited. I will yet choose Jerusalem and Zion. I'm still going to do this, and it may seem like it's too long to you. And Habakkuk said the same thing. It won't tarry. But if it does tarry, it won't tarry long, are the words he uses there. So wherever you go, when it talks about this period of time, it shows the formal fulfillment, and then the actual occurrence is delayed somewhat. Uh, Ezekiel says, not like the echoing of the hills, it just seems to go on forever, but a shorter period of time. And that is the time that I believe we are in right now. Very close to happening. He says, a line is still going to be stretched on Jerusalem, so comfort Zion, and I'll yet choose Jerusalem. And then he mentions a problem that there are those who are trying to destroy that have to be removed before true growth can occur. It's like trimming a tree. You know, you, it grows or a rose bush or whatever, and you have to prune it so that it can produce more growth. So that which is unhealthy, that which is dead or dying, or that which is not in uh, sync with growth, has to be trimmed and taken away. So he says here, some destroyers have to be taken out uh, by, because there are people who have been trying to destroy what God has set up to build on. So that has to happen. Then you get to chapter 2, because before you're going to do a project, often you have prep work that has to be done, and you have issues that have to be resolved before you can move forward. And that's what he's saying here at the end of chapter 1. Some issues have to get taken care of, and then he will yet remember Jerusalem. So he says in chapter 2 then, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, where do you go? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. Now we know from quite a few scriptures we've examined that Jerusalem has been destroyed, the original physical Jerusalem, and that it has been laid bare, and no man dwells there, and that it would be that way for many generations. That's echoed in at least four or five different prophecies that mention that when you start looking it up. So nobody knows really, maybe for sure, exactly where the city was, I have an inkling I know where it was. It's the right distance from where I think the Mount of Olives is. But it still will need to be measured and checked out and figure out just where it goes. Now, God may unearth some records that show that and some maps that show where everything was. I suspect that will happen. So he will either give us physical evidence or he will plant within perhaps the Rebbe Bell uh, vision, 
a dream, uh, dis- give him information as to where all this is so that it can be checked out and measured and building to begin. You got to do that first. I've built quite a few buildings in my life. You know what's the first thing I do? So I go out and look around and see about where the building ought to be, and then I take a tape and I start measuring where I want it to be. And once I get the length there and get the width, then I'll take the tape and square it up to be sure the building isn't cockeyed on it and the foundation has to be straight to build on. So that's what he's talking about here. Uh, he went out to measure the width and the breadth. So things will be lined up, problems will be taken care of, and then it'll be time to build. Now this could apply both to the physical city of Jerusalem and temple. It could also apply to uh, the spiritual side or the people. Because people are going to come from all over the world, that faithful remnant, wherever they happen to be that God stirs, and they're going to get here, and then you have to kind of check out and see how big a crowd it is, <laughs> to see how wide and how long and how many people are there that need to be taken care of. So uh, this could be both a physical and a spiritual thing. So he's been given this measuring tape to check it out. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. So they're working together here to accomplish a purpose. And said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. So he first sends somebody out to check where and how big, and then says, run, because it's time for this thing to get going. You know, you do a certain amount of preparation and squaring up and foundation building, and then there comes a period where you have to hurry. Just on a physical standpoint, we had plenty of time when we laid the footing for this building. There wasn't any great time pressure. You work at it. You get the boards all lined up. You nail it all together. You get it measured properly and filled in so the concrete won't uh, expand it or ruin it. So you have time to get some things done. But then when you make the call and the concrete trucks are coming, you run. Because you usually don't have everything quite ready, and you have to scurry to finish up the last. And then when the concrete gets here, you don't have time hardly to breathe because you've got to be really, really busy. It'll set up pretty fast wherever it is, and you've got to get it put in the right places. So concrete work is that way. (coughs) And I use it as a small example here to show that God is going to wait until the time is here. And once the time has arrived, there's no more delay. The delay, the waiting, the space for repentance, everything is done. Now it's get to work. 
And you see that in the book of Haggai, where it says, the word came and the people got up and went to work. Uh, the delay was over. And that's, he's speaking of the same thing right here. Because this place has got to be ready for habitation. There'll be inhabitants. It will be built as towns without walls. And there'll be a multitude of men and cattle there. Now, the original city of Jerusalem was a walled city. It wasn't in the Middle East, but it was a walled city. And there were villages around it, agricultural villages. Now, what that means here at the end, we'll wait and see. But apparently, as I see it at least, uh, from reading Ezekiel, the temple is built in a certain location, and then the city is built around it like it was in Ezra and Nehemiah. That will probably happen. But also, there will be villages and towns around, villages without walls. God will be the defense. And there'll be men and cattle there. So, plenty of food around in a nation of people who are starving to death. And that starvation is now beginning to be laid upon us by the removal of things from the shelves, by trucker problems. I just heard of somebody who knows someone who works on the docks down in L.A. And... uh they have thousands and thousands of containers that have been unloaded there from the ships from China or wherever. And they're just sitting there, not being picked up. And now people have started opening them, opening them and looting them, and the cops aren't doing anything about it. They're just letting them open them up and take what they want. So this thing is planned all the way through to get to the point where the shipping and the trucking will stop and you won't be able to go to the grocery store and get anything. And if you don't have the chip of the beast, you can't buy and sell even what is there. So God will take care of his people, and there will be a multitude of men and cattle. For I, says the Eternal, will be to her a wall of fire round about, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. So... When Christ does this, and this isn't millennial, this is still speaking of the two witnesses and the remnant who are here to build a physical temple. This isn't the new Jerusalem coming down in Revelation 21. This is a physical temple and a physical city, and the beast and the false prophet have to defile it and run God's people out and up into the hills of Judea and to Zion. So this is still talking about that time, and he does tell us here, just shortly in this same chapter, that he will be here dwelling among us. So he says, when it built, he'll be a wall of fire around it, and the glory in the midst of it. So his light, to some degree or another, will shine from this Jerusalem that is to be built. He does tell us in Ezekiel that he will dwell in the temple and be the light and the glory of it. So he's saying essentially the same thing right here uh, in terms of the city being built and men and cattle around and how he will protect it. Without his protection, we're dead just like everybody else. But he does say that he will do this. 
I don't know what kind of wall of fire this is talking about. Uh, it could be a bunch of these volcanoes around here that we're surrounded by that light up uh, and make fire and smoke and scare people out of here, except for those who know what it's all about. Or it could be simply a wall of fire that he creates that keeps people out. And Isaiah says also that there will be a covert over it to keep out the heat and the rain. So, protection from bad weather, protection from wind, protection from hail and snow and, and rain and, and all those things that can be a problem. So, you'll be able to grow crops and cattle and have grass up to here uh, because the weather will be perfect. And I think that he will do it probably the way it appears he did in Eden, where the water comes up as dew and waters the plants instead of as rain. Because if he's got a covert to keep the rain off us, then the water has to be coming from somewhere else and probably from underneath. There are some beautiful areas, even here in the West, where they have subterranean irrigation. They don't have to have sprinklers. The the water table is high enough. The water the plants are watered from beneath. Needs no irrigation at all. There's one right here, uh, right up here at the head of the canyon, where you see horses and cattle out there, and there's grass year-round uh, because the water's close enough; it gets watered year-round. So it appears that that'll be the case uh, in this Jerusalem that is to be built here shortly. So God says He'll come. He's going to take a hand, Jesus Christ or Emmanuel at that time. And he will be here and be the glory in the middle of her. So in verse 6 he says, Ho, ho, come forth. He's not laughing. It's, it's a, a signal like you would wave somebody in. Uh, come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the eternal. So land of the north in scripture generally is depicted by the Assyrian and those who are dwelling with the Assyrian, uh, and he will expand that here in a moment, from the land of the north, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the eternal. And he does say in several places he'll gather us from the east, the west, the north, and the south, from around the world where people have been called, they'll be brought back. And then he says, deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Now, he told us in Micah 4 to separate from the cities and come dwell in the wilderness. And a few of us recognize that and have done so. But now he's calling for people from around the world to come and do the same thing. So, if they're in the north, they come here. If they're around the world this Babylon of the United States, or the Babylon system around the world of Satan, uh, wherever they are, they're to flee from that and come to this Jerusalem that is about to be built. Uh, the RSV says, instead of deliver yourself, O Zion, says flee to Zion. that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. 
the Amplified also has that uh, translation. So get away from the confusion of Satan's world, which is represents Babylon. He's the ruler of the whole earth, and his confusion is scattered clear around the earth. So wherever you are on earth, you have to get away from Satan's system and come out and dwell in a place where there will be a wall of fire and a covert from the weather, and Christ will be the glory in the middle of it, and it's the only place on earth that is going to be protected from Satan and his demons and the beast and false prophet. And even it is going to be made smaller when the promised land is overrun by the Assyrian, as Isaiah 7 through 10 say, and we have to flee to Zion, which is a smaller area than the whole promised land that was here. And the beast and false prophet then will take over Jerusalem. Remember, the two witnesses are to die in the streets of Jerusalem at the hands of the beast and the false prophet. So they are there, they are ruling Jerusalem at that time, and those two go to preach against them, and the war is commenced, and those two get killed there. So Satan and the world will be controlling at that point everything but Zion itself, however big God makes that. He's not uh, hindered by national park lines. He can make it whatever size he wishes. But it won't be that large, because even Jerusalem, which is 50, 60 miles north of it, actually not even that far as the crow flies, uh, will not be part of it. So I think it will be shrunk down considerably. So, he says, get out of Satan's world completely at this point, and come where you can be protected by God, and... Nourished. For thus says the Eternal, verse 8, the, the Eternal of hosts, After the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. So God's people will have been abused by the church. They will have been abused by the nations that they are in. Even now we have a war against Christianity going on wherever anyone professes to be a Christian. And that includes the United States and Western Europe as well, not just Africa or somewhere like that. If you take the name of Christ anywhere on earth today, you're putting yourself in jeopardy. And if you don't think so, uh, just watch because it's going to get a whole lot worse here. They're saying more and more about it as time goes on. So God is going to take care of those that he has been working with. And then he will take care of the ones who have misused and abused us as well. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. So the leaders of the peoples of this world are going to become servants or spoil to their servants, removed from office, taken down. 
And he even tells us he'll make the Assyrian army flee before the church there in Micah 4 and 5. And in uh, Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, through that section and other places. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me. Now, who is this speaking of? Zechariah is writing it. And it may be speaking here even of, Ze- of Zerubbabel who is in charge from a physical standpoint with Christ Emmanuel here overseeing everything but making sure that seven, eight principal men are able to send the Assyrian packing. So Christ being here is going to make a whale of a difference. And then in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Now remember, that's what he said there toward the end of... Uh, of the book of Zephaniah. He puts it there. Let's see. Well, I can't even find it now. Oh, I'm in Haggai. No wonder. Seeing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, verse 14 of, of Zephaniah 3. Uh, Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Because he says there, I'm about to turn things around and you'll have good fortune or good blessing instead of cursing. And he's repeating the same thing here because now he's getting down to the nuts and bolts of it. Now he's telling us the details of how he's going to do this. He's calling for people to leave the place they are, come to Jerusalem, come to Zion, and there he will be and take care of us like he would the apple of his eye. And he will shake them up. So, our attitude then will be sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come and I will dwell in the middle of you, says the Eternal. So before he returns in glory in the first resurrection, he's coming to dwell in the midst of the church, the 10% that is faithful that he's stirring to come and build the temple and Jerusalem. Now, that shouldn't shake us up. Christ has been back and forth uh, on this earth a lot. Uh, He came down to create Adam and Eve because nothing was made without him, Colossians tells us. So he's the one who did the actual creating, took the dust and made Adam and a rib and made Eve. He's the one that was there from the very beginning doing it all and was there and came back and forth through the Old Testament quite a few times to speak with Abraham, to speak with Moses, uh, and various ones. So, we talk about Christ's second coming, uh, or they do in the Protestant world, and no, it's not his second coming, it's his umpteenth coming. No telling how many times he's come back and forth. Uh, he came and lived here for 33 and a half years for sure. And then he came back several times after that. He came back to the disciples there in Jerusalem. And he came to Paul and taught him three and a half years in the desert. So him coming back and forth, not in glory, uh, has been a very, very common thing. And in spirit, he's right here in the room today. We ask him to be here and he's here. 
So, uh, he may be on his throne in the heavens at the moment, but in spirit, he's here. Because he has that capacity to be everywhere, wherever he wishes to be. But what he's saying here in Zechariah is he's coming down from his father's throne, and he's going to dwell in the middle of us, the same way he dwelt with Paul for three and a half years and taught him. He'd given the disciples time to be taught, and he was planning on using Paul in a major way, so he made sure Paul got the attention he needed. He's always done that. So whoever the two are that are come to come and teach the church, as we'll see in Zechariah 4, and who will then go against the world, will have been trained long ahead of time in Christianity, in the church of God, not somewhere else. And they're going to know what to do. They're going to know what to teach. They feed the church, as we'll see in chapter 4. Well, they've got to know what to feed them. So they will have been trained in it. Whoever they are, they will have been trained because God always does that. He's been working with them. So, verse 11, Many people shall be joined to the eternal in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says it again, and you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you. Now, he may be speaking here of the Father is the Lord of hosts, who has sent him. It's a little unclear exactly, but, it, but he himself will be here dwelling with us and in the midst of us, he says. So there will be some further training. He won't just be sitting still. He will be quite busy, as he always is. And the Eternal shall inherit Judah, his portion, in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. So Jerusalem has been desolate now for many generations, and it will be chosen again. It will be built in her own place, it says back in chapter 12, I think it is. The place where it belongs, not the place that the world and Satan claim it is today. You know, the church might have trouble, and the rest of the world have trouble figuring out where Jerusalem is, but Satan knows, and the beast and false prophet are going to know where it is because they are going to come and defile it and set their tabernacle up there. Daniel makes that quite clear. Daniel 11 and other places. So yeah, everybody's going to know where the true Jerusalem is uh, when God, through the church, gets done building it. And they will come and defile it as soon as it's finished. Seventy weeks from the time that the order is given to build it, it will be defiled. God's going to allow it for three and a half years, the times of the Gentiles, and then trouble will come to them. So we'll know that God has been sent. So he says then in verse 13, Be silent, O all flesh, 
before the Eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. In other words, the time has now come when he is going, when this is speaking of, when he has decided this interim period between the end of the 70 and the 430 and the eclipse of Amos 8, when that determined time is finished and he raises up to go to work, he says the whole earth should pay attention. Back off, look up, be scared. Because it's not a time to mouth off, it's time to be silent and observe what God is now going to do. Because to you and me and to the world, it appears he's doing nothing. He's doing nothing. But when he sets his hand in the promised land to do his building and begin his final work, raises out of his holy habitation and comes and dwells here with us, then things are going to start popping. Then it's time to sing and rejoice before him. Now let's go to chapter 3. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the eternal, and, stand, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him, or to make him his, the Hebrew can say. He's trying to take him away and cause him to turn to Satan instead of to God. So Satan knows where God is working. He's going to know who this individual is, and he's going to do his level best to take him down and get him out of the picture, because he knows God has intentions of using him for his purposes. So he's right there, Johnny on the spot, to do everything he can to stop the building of Jerusalem and the building of the temple and the two witnesses from bringing the church together and then going out to preach against him and be killed in the streets of Jerusalem and Christ returning in glory then, not just dwelling in the midst of, in whatever level of glory he chooses to show. Now he says he'll be the glory in the midst of, which means there is a certain amount of glory there. Whether his face will shine a little brighter than anybody else's, or just what, we don't know. But a, a certain degree of his glory will be evidenced. Not his full glory, I am sure. Because no man can look at that and live. So there's a difference. You know, these lights, you can turn the thing and you can turn it way down or you can turn it way up. He has the capacity to appear as a man without any glory or as Christ with a little bit turned on or later on in great glory. He has control of all these things. But anyway, here's Joshua who's uh, regarded as the high priest, a man. And the Lord said to Satan, The Eternal rebuke you, O Satan. 
Even the eternal that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? So Satan is going to try to take this Joshua out in any way he can. And then Christ is going to rebuke Satan and tell him at some point, leave him alone. Get away from there. Don't do that anymore. So a battle goes on for a while, and then Christ puts a stop to it. And he says that this Joshua is a brand plucked out of the fire was in danger of fire. Now, whether that's the fire of tribulation or of Gehenna fire isn't stated, but it is both, really. I think you'd have to come to that conclusion. Because if this man has sinned, then he is in danger of the lake of fire. Everybody is. Anyone who sins if he has to pay for his own sin, is in danger of the lake of fire. So, this individual spoken of here is no different than anyone else in that sense. So, God is plucking him out of the fire. Now, let's look for a few moments at the role of the high priest, since there will be one. Uh, when Jerusalem is built and the temple is built. If you go back, and I'm not going to take the time at this point, we've been through some of it before, but all Israel was in sin, nearly all the time, okay? And the blood of bulls and goats does never get rid of sin. Sin continues, Now, Adam and Eve were told from the moment they sinned, they were as good as dead. And physical death was pronounced upon them. The people in the Old Testament, ancient Israel, were never promised eternal life. They were only promised blessing in this life. Or cursing, depending on whether they obeyed or disobeyed, but they were not offered eternal life until the new covenant. A few understood it, like David and Abraham and so on, and God may have clued them in a little bit, but it was not offered in a covenant way at all until Christ came. So, they continued to die, physically. Now, The New Covenant says we'll not die. But you know what? Christians are still dying. You and I are scheduled to die. Everybody is. So when he talks about not dying or living, he's speaking of eternal life because he's never removed physical death. It continues even in the New Covenant. Didn't stop. All the apostles died. Everybody in the early New Testament church died. So obviously he's speaking of something more than physical death when he speaks of the resurrection of the dead and the dead in Christ will rise. So the new covenant did not remove us from death. It removed us from eternal death is what it did. It raised us above that. But when the high priest went in, 
He was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And before he went in, he had to cleanse his body, he had to cleanse his clothes, he had to wear certain clothes that were designed specifically for that, and he went there for all the people. God did not put Aaron in the Holy of Holies for Aaron's sins. God sent Aaron into the Holy of Holies for all Israel's sins once a year. And that was the time they were expunged. So you could say, well, it was all on Aaron. It was all Aaron's fault because he was filthy. And he had to take a bath and he had to put on clean clothes and special type of clothes so he could go in. But no, he went in for everybody. That's what a high priest is there for, is to be an intermediary for everyone. Now, take that to the New Testament. And Christ came to the earth as high priest. Now, he is still our high priest in heaven today, the high priest, the spiritual high priest. But there have been priests in the New Testament, and Paul spoke of it in the book of Hebrews, is not the term priests anymore, but ministers. Uh, there was a, a change in title, but not a change in function. But here, of the two witnesses in the end time church, there's still a high priest of men. So, Christ was here as a high priest of men, was he not? He died for sin. His sin? No. For the sin of the people. He never sinned. But the sins of all the people were laid on him. So when he died, it was not for himself. It was for you and me. And it's easy for us to say, well, those Jews back then killed the Savior. No. Take it personal. I killed the Savior. You killed the Savior. Do we really grasp that? I know you may understand it, but is it reality to you? How much of his death and his suffering do we take upon ourselves? Because every one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we personally had a part in his death. We contributed to it, and we agreed with it. I did not. I didn't agree with him dying. I still don't agree with him dying. Yes, you do. Every time you sin, you are agreeing with the lashes that were put on his back, and you are agreeing with him carrying that tree, because you chose sin instead of righteousness. We need to think that way. And if we had that consciousness, 
and were made ourselves aware of it on a daily basis, maybe we would not quite as quickly and easily sin as we do. Maybe we would more carefully control our thoughts and minds and where we let them go. Because we know that every one of those sins contributed to his death. He didn't die for himself. He died for all of us. Now you can take the responsibility and the guilt, and you should, but at the same time, you can take the blessing and the grace and the forgiveness that is given to you because of your sins. So, yes, I contributed to his death. Peter turned away. I don't know that guy. When I choose to let myself sin in whatever way, I turn away and say, I don't know that guy. I want to do this. Oh, he's still there. And then I say, why did I do that? And then I say, oh, God, forgive me for what I've done. But you shut God out when you decide to sin, momentarily, or for however long you persist in your sin. Conscience may bother you, which is good, and it should, because it's been trained against sin. But when we give in in any way, we are committing idolatry and putting ourselves ahead of God. That's what idolatry is. So, Christ came and died for all of us and became sin for all of us. When he hung on that stake, he carried every sin that has ever been committed by mankind on his head and on his back. None of his sin, but all of ours. And that's why it says that Adam represented all mankind, the first Adam, because Adam sinned, and every one of us have sinned since. So in that sense, Adam is a type of all of us. We've all done the same thing Adam and Eve did. We've sinned. Now Christ came and did not any sin at all, so he's the second Adam, or the second one to represent all mankind. Adam could represent all of us as a sinner, and Christ can represent all of us as a non-sinner. He's the only one that never did. That's why he's the second Adam. The only one since Adam who could represent everybody in not sinning. So he is our high priest who has gone to his Father in heaven and is there to forgive all our sins. So when Aaron went in, he asked God to forgive all our sins, but it was just once a year. And the blood of bull and goats was a consequence of sin, but it did not forgive sin in the sense that it was expunged and gone. Christ's sacrifice did that.
Aaron represented us all, or all Israel. And Christ represents us all as our current high priest. Now, this Joshua here is a representative directly of Christ who was sent as a human high priest or lead minister who is here to help us in our relationship with God. Zechariah 4 talks about these Joshua and then Zerubbabel combining to pour out the golden oil on the seven lamps or all seven churches. So they will have been appointed to represent all the people. And that's why it is imperative that we look at chapter 3 and realize this isn't talking to one man. This is talking to all of us. Who all got spewed out in Revelation 3? All of us. All of us were filthy and naked and blind and deceived as to our spiritual condition and our sins. So God didn't just cast this Joshua, whoever it might be, out. He cast us all out. And Joshua is just a representation of all of us. Because he himself has sinned, and all of us have sinned as well. So don't read Joshua thinking of one person. Think of Joshua representing the whole remnant of the church. Aaron represented the whole of Israel. Christ represented the whole of mankind. So a high priest here at the end, whose uh, authority extends to the 10% remnant, represents all of them before God. So when he says he had on filthy garments, that's exactly what Revelation 3 says that we all have. I think it even uses garments, doesn't it? Let's go back there and look at that again. Revelation 3. You're just lukewarm because you say I'm enriched and increased with goods and don't have anything, but know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked without clothing. Our sins bear for the whole world and the whole church and for God to see. So he says, buy gold tried in the fire. Go through a lot of trouble, trial, and tribulation, which is what we've been doing. That you may be rich and white raiment, that you may be clothed, so you're not naked anymore. And that's what he says to Joshua. It's what he says to all of us there in Revelation 3. Then he uses Joshua as an example of all of us, representing the church. And he represents, I, I, I made a mistake there. He doesn't represent just the 10% remnant. He represents the whole church. Because we'll see that where uh, Christ is the stone and the seven eyes of the seven churches all turn to Joshua. And that's the same name as Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua. Same name. Christ will be here, but Christ is without sin, 
So he uses this individual, who is actually one of the two witnesses, as an example of a high priest who represents everybody who were naked and need white clothes of righteousness. That's the kind of clothes we need. The clothes we had on were filthy with sin, spotted by the world. Now he wants us to don white raiment that we may not naked as an end-time church. We have to be a light to the whole world, do we not? And they need to see righteousness. They don't need to see a bunch of filthy people. So he was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So this Joshua had sinned and was in that sense in filthy garments, stained by sin. And that sin needs to be removed, just as all of our sins need to be removed so that we can be clean and righteous before God and as an example to the world. Now, what does he tell us about ourselves and our hearts and what we are as human beings? We are deceitful and desperately wicked and can't even know our own sin. We are self-righteous, self-deluded, self-deceived. Now, what's he going to do about it? Go to Isaiah 54 for a moment. Now, I think that this is a key. Maybe I'll spend a little time here and we won't get too far today in Zechariah. But we need to recognize where we are in this interim period spoken of in chapter 1 before Christ stands in his holy habitation and begins to go to work. I think Isaiah 52, 53, and 54 give us a sequence here that probably will be repeated uh, in the way that it's laid out. So he talks about how badly we have behaved, and three times in chapter 51, verse 9, verse 17, and then 52, verse 1, three times he says, wake up, to come alive, to quit slumbering and sleeping, as Revelation 3 says we were doing. And he says, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. So we have not been in beautiful garments. We've been asleep in our sins, and we have to put on the garments of holiness, of righteousness. O Jerusalem, the holy city. That's speaking of the church, Hebrews 12:22 and 23. For henceforth there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. When he stirs people to come, he's not going to bring the unclean. He wants us cleaned up. And he's going to get rid of the unclean that are here and bring in people that can be cleansed and be clean. Shake yourself from the dust. Sit up. You've sold yourselves for nothing and shall be redeemed without money. We've sold ourselves to the world in so many, many ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every way we can. 
Now, we're redeemed without money, that is, the blood of Christ. And he is bringing us to redeem us from the wreck of the church and from the wreckage of the world. So Christ himself will do the redeeming. Loose yourselves from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I was thinking about that this morning. I've got to loose myself from eating dead babies that are put out there by the big corporations that are familiar names to us. We knew we shouldn't drink Pepsi and Coke and all these things anyway, didn't we? And Sprite and whatever all else is out there. We knew we shouldn't because they were unhealthy for us. But, you know, not gonna, another one's not going to hurt me. Eh, whatever. We reason. <coughs> but how do you reach for another one when you know somebody killed a baby and put some of him into that can? That's a pretty heavy thing to consider. <coughs> I do want to print out that list. And it may not be a complete list. But at least I can avoid what I know is on the list. <coughs> we have to shake ourselves loose from the bands of Satan and Babylon. Let's go on down to verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, your God reigns. Now that's the same language used in Isaiah 40 about a voice crying in the wilderness that is bringing a beautiful message of peace and prosperity that the church is going to enjoy here at the end. What it's talking about. And he said he would just send one voice, is all. Not a multitude, just one. And it says, Thy watchmen. Suddenly it goes plural. There are two watchmen that are going to be raised up. Shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Eternal shall bring again Zion. Not until. People say to me, well, do you think this has happened yet? Are the two witnesses together? No, they are not. They cannot be. Until God turns it around. And we're going to see at the end of Zechariah 3, if we get there today, that it is going to be the signs and wonders done under and through Joshua that cause Zerubbabel to be revealed. God's strong arm will be revealed at that time because it is going to be the signs and wonders from Christ which cause them to see eye to eye. And that's repeated in Zechariah 6. That's the time it will happen. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. 
the church that is wasted out there, the 10%, are going to come singing and rejoicing to Zion, as we saw even today in Zephaniah 3 and in Zechariah 2. It's going to happen that way. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. That's what we just read. He is yet going to choose Jerusalem shortly. After the 70 is over, a short time later, not much longer. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of the nations. That's what Zechariah 3 is talking about when He reveals His servant the branch. The holy arm, the right bough, the right branch, if you will. And the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Everybody worldwide is going to see what happens to the church, which will stand in Mount Zion and preach from there the truth of God, and they cannot be harmed or hurt at that point. So he says, don't touch the unclean thing. Get out of the midst of her. Isn't that what he tells us there in Zechariah 2? Flee from the Assyrian, get out of Babylon, go dwell at Jerusalem, go to Zion. Saying the same thing here exactly. And he says, be clean, you that bear the vessels of the eternal. We can't be laden with sin, but we have to be clean. And he says here, don't go by haste, but do it. Now Matthew 24, when they defile the temple, says, don't go back, don't look back, just go. That's with haste. But the coming out of the world to come to build Jerusalem in the temple is doesn't have to be done in a great hasty way. But there comes a point when you've got the Assyrian army behind you when you're going to get a move on, as Jeremiah 50 says. Now, Let's look at the sequence here, and here's why I've always looked at the Passover season as probably the time that these things will happen and the gathering will come. We're less than three months from Passover. Maybe it'll be this year. I don't know. We shall see. We always speculate these things as the different holy days come around. But is this the time? Is this the time? It says back there that we look for him. And we are to look for Him. So that means each time that comes up during the calendar, we should be looking to see, is this it? Is this it? We're not predicting it. We're speculating and hoping for it. We are eternally hopeful that now is the time. So I began to look forward to Passover already, thinking, well, Isaiah 52, 53, and 54 are coming around again. Here we go, because he talks about the signs and wonders occurring and the blessings beginning to come and that the two will get together and see eye to eye when that happens. Then the next chapter, 53, is all about Christ's sacrifice. It's all about the Passover season, right? Then chapter 54 goes into gather yourselves. Break forth into singing and crying aloud and enlarge the place of your tent. A lot of people are coming. And that God will be here with us 
And that we thought we were forsaken, but we won't feel that way anymore. I, I don't have time to go through the whole chapter. We've been through it before. But right down at the bottom, verse 17, says it will be protected and that this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, says the Eternal. So the self-righteousness we had in Sardis that turned us into Laodiceans is going to go away, and our righteousness will be the righteousness of Christ himself. Now what is your righteousness today? worth? What's it worth? A used menstrual cloth is what he says all our righteousness is equal to. Not pleasant. Not good. That's it. The best we can do is that. So it has to be turned around and become His righteousness through us. Now, do we have some of that now? I hope so. But He's going to turn things around very, very dramatically. And He will be here and His righteousness will come out and we will partake of it and then our righteousness will be God's righteousness. Not this thing that we try to do and fail at so very often. So going back to Zechariah, let me take just a few minutes. He's taking away our filthy garments that we have worn through Laodiceanism. And to him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with change of raiment. Didn't we just read that? That they will have the righteousness of Christ. There's going to be a change from our pitiful attempted righteousness where we partake of His. And it will be so much better than what we're experiencing today. So it's not just Him. He represents the church. He represents all of us. But a personal example is used as it was of Aaron, as it was of Christ, as it is of this minister that we're reading of here in Zechariah 3. But don't look around and say, where's a filthy guy? That's got to be him. No, this is all of us. We've all been filthy and come short of the glory of God. And this man just represents you and me. That's who he represents, is the church. Clothing with a change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre on his head. So they set a fair mitre on his head and clothed him with garments, righteous ones, and the angel of the eternal stood by. Now we've read in Revelation 3, and in Revelation, I mean Isaiah 52, 3 and 4, that we are all to be clothed with this. So it's speaking of all of us. We get a nice hat put on our head. We get clean garments. It's about all of us. We were all filthy, and we'll all be cleansed. Then there's a warning. The angel of the Lord protested to Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my charge, then shall you also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. The court of heaven, the angels, the 24 elders. He's going to give us a place there. Read the reward to the churches. I'll give you crowns. I'll let you reign with me in my throne. You'll be in my courts. You'll be the bride of Christ who will be with Him. He's with His Father and we'll be with Him. So we'll be right there in His courts. He's giving us a promise here similar to the promises He gives us in Revelation 2 and 3. That's just a repeat of what is said here. It's speaking to all of us. He says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and their fellows that sit before you, for they are men of sign and wonder, it says in the Hebrew. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. That's what he says in Isaiah 52. He'll bring forth that strong arm, his leader, his branch, at the time when God brings back Israel begins to bless the church. It is these signs and wonders here that Christ does that is going to cause Zerubbabel to come where he needs to go. And those two will then see eye to eye because they've seen what Christ has done to unite them and to bring 10% of the church and unite it what this is talking about. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Isaiah 53, is it Passover day? Maybe. But he's going to give us healings and signs and wonders, and that's going to bring the two who will witness against the world together and who will teach the church together. It will bring them together. And Christ is the stone here, I have no doubt. The seven eyes are the eyes of the churches who will turn to him as he does these miracles. A lot of people are saying, where is Christ? What is he doing? Where is he working? Suddenly, it will become very obvious where he is working. And 10% will respond, and 90% are going to say, Oh, I don't think so. I don't believe that's it. And they won't come. But he's going to show the churches what he's doing. And he's going to use this individual to help do that. So Joshua here represents you and me, and we are here to be healed, to be helped, to be blessed, so that the rest of the church can see what God is doing in and through us. That's what we're called here to do and to be. And God will remove the sin because Christ is the sin remover. <clears throat> In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall every man call his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. 
So he's going to build Jerusalem as a town without walls, covered from the weather, and everybody is going to have his own land and be able to grow things and grow them well and be neighbors in peace together, united under Christ, the two, and the remnant who dwell together in peace and safety as an example to the rest of the world of what can happen if you will obey God. And then that example is going to be used and preached to the world and they will reject it and be killed and come up in the second resurrection, but they'll remember it. And God will use it to great advantage in saving the peoples of this world. So I'm way out of time, so let's stop there.